My name is Jim Edmonds, and I'll be reading the scripture today. It's from James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. I remember a family dinner about eight years ago when my kids were around 10, 8, and 4. And my daughter had this plate of vegetables that she did not want to eat. And so she clearly let us know she wasn't going to eat the vegetables. And I can't remember who said what, but either I or her mom said something to, no, you're going to eat the vegetables. And she, defiantly, strong, said, no, I'm not. And I noticed the two boys, her brothers, kind of look at each other like, do we say something? And the younger of her older brothers leaned over and said, this is not going to work. <laughs> to some of them, like, don't try this. And then the older one just cut to the chase and just kind of laid it out. Like, here's what happened to me. And I don't remember what happened. I just remember watching brothers who were four and six years older have a slightly more nuanced perspective on what a four-year-old was about to go through. We get a little bit of that in James 5. Out of all the texts in this letter, this arguably is the only one not directly talking to Christians. Now, don't get me wrong. It's in James. It's God's Word, and He's wanting us to clearly hear it. But He's kind of giving us insight into what He's going to do to those in our world who have hoarded their wealth and lived a life of luxury disadvantaged the poor and in their greed and corruption have ruined many lives. Uh, proof of this is just simply when you get to verse 7 and beyond, what we'll look at next week, numerous times James says brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. Here he's talking to the wealthy. Now fair enough, there were going to be some wealthy in the churches to whom James is writing, but he's, a, he's actually assuming that most of the Christians to whom, he, to whom he is writing are not the wealthy. Many of them were Jewish Christians who were forced out of their Jerusalem environment and had to move to foreign lands, which means they don't have several generations of accrued wealth and land ownership. So you get a bit of a glimpse of God talking to the wealthy. And it's harsh language. I mean, Jim just read it for us, and, but, but it's harsh, harsh language. Because God is serious about the dangers of wealth. That's right, the dangers. Just, just a couple details. God talks more about his concern with how we manage and handle money than he does heaven in the new creation. He talks twice as much about money and finances as he does with any sin of sexuality or the body. Now, just think about that for a second. 
Yet in our Christian culture, we love to hone in on body sexual sins. We'll talk about those all day long. But don't bring up my money. Don't make me think about, am I being honorable before God with how I use my resources? Like that's the one sin, if we could pick on one, that's able to slide right through church doors and never be addressed. But man, any type of blatant sexual sin or marriage sin or issues of abortion, we are on that. We, we got to fight that. This is something we need to protest. But when it comes to greed and materialism, well, what, are you, what are we talking about here? Yet when you look at Scripture's own accounting, the thing he's concerned with most is the cancer of a love of money. A cancer. That will corrupt you. So fair enough, he might have not been speaking to a host of people in his churches when James wrote these, this letter, but he wanted you to hear clearly what's going on. Like that little girl of mine who needed her older brothers to say, well, mom and dad aren't talking to me in this moment, but I kind of know what their point is. Let me help you out, sister. Well, let's pray and then we'll look at the text together and Try to heed God's warning to the wealthy. Father, we, we come each week and we ask for you to address the issues from your word that you want to use to form us and shape us and mold us, to transform us by your spirit. And we just know that this topic has been given a bit of a free pass in the wealthiest nation in the world. And people aren't up in arms over the greed of their own brothers and sisters in Christ or their own nation or their neighbors, they are up in arms over sexual bodily sins. Not this one. Father, are we right in that? Imbalance? Your word today rebukes us. So help us to heed it and to do your work, we ask, Father, by your spirit in each of us. We pray that mercifully in Jesus' name name. Amen. Well, if you, want to, if you want to kind of know what Revelation sounds like, if we were in a Revelation series, it'd actually be these verses. This is apocalyptic language. L listen to it. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. That's not, that's not like you, you don't have that, like, what's your favorite life first? Honestly, James 5, 1, I love it. <laughs> means so much. No one puts that as a life verse. How about verse 2? Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. That's, that's apocalyptic, revelation-like language telling you the reality that you haven't seen yet but is around the corner. Like what revelation does in pictures, James is doing with words. How about verse 3? Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. I mean, listen to that. That's harsh language. Now, we laugh and smile, and rightly so, but do you feel the heat of that? Like when you open the oven and your face was a little too close, and you didn't let the first burst of heat come out? That, you're just right by the heat of that. And part of you just has to ask the question, Lord, what am I, if, if I'm not thinking of this as strongly as you're saying it, what am I missing? 
And I summarize what I think the, the, the gist of these first three verses are by saying this, Christians in the world's wealthiest nation need to be warned about the dangers of wealth. The dangers of wealth. Okay, this, James isn't necessarily saying that wealthy people, just by, in essence, of their being wealthy, are necessarily sinning. He's warning us what wealth will do to us. And we need to hear and reflect on that. Now, to be honest with you, it's hard to even see sometimes how wealthy we are. Again, when we think of wealth, we think of like a quarterback playing today who's making $30 million a year. That's what we think is wealthy. We, we think, of, think of a famous movie star or big executives in companies making $32 million a year because they sell Fords or something. That's what we think of as wealth. We don't think of you and me. To be fair, in the wealthiest nation in the world, the bar for being considered wealthy is a bit high. In the United States, to be considered wealthy, you have to have $2.2 million in assets. So that'd be the value of your home, the value of your cars, retirement account. Again, it wouldn't it be that hard to get to for many people in our community, $2.2 million. That's a lot of money. Now, you compare that to the world. If you are making or have at your disposal $50 a day, you are considered rich according to the universal standard. Pew Research Center put this out. Universal standard of wealth, $50 or above is considered wealthy in the world standard. Now, again, that's not going to buy you a flat in New York City in the wealthiest nation in the world. But in the jungles of Brazil, where Ed and Mary Alice Titkin served for 20 years, you'd be like a millionaire. In various other portions of our world, you would be living the life of luxury. But do you know what 50 bucks a day is? 18,250 bucks. I like how Webster Dictionary defines rich. You know how they define it? Rich implies having more than enough to gratify normal needs. I think of that. I kind of like that one. Having more than enough to gratify normal needs. So the, the way Vera framed it to our kids just now, like you don't think about, you know what, I, we had enough for breakfast, what are we doing for lunch today? Because you have more than enough to be able to either get groceries if you need it, or go out to a restaurant, or whatever you may do, or just a stock in your own home that you can go and eat food. You aren't even worried. It's not even crossing your mind, because you just have enough. You're not, you're not worried about the electric being turned off on Monday morning, or you're not worried about losing the roof over your head. You, honestly, you don't even think about that. If you are in that mode, which is probably a lot of people in our midst, you are by definition rich. Again, that doesn't feel rich to you. Because you're thinking rich is like Learjet rich. Or like limousine and multiple homes rich. But I wonder if that standard is just a little bit skewed. But to be fair, rich is more, or wealth feels, is more of a feeling. It's more of a comparison. It's not a stat. 
because I tell you what the Pew Research Center says about 50 bucks a day, you're not walking home like, I am so wealthy. You're not thinking that way. Stats don't stick like a feeling of wealth. And if you're in the wealthiest nation in the world, you probably don't feel wealthy. So James wants us to hear, God wants us to be concerned with the dangers of wealth. Why would God speak judgment this way? Why? He's not just ripping on the church. I mean, there's probably people in the church that are being supported, original readers of James, being supported by the church for daily food and provision, right? So why is God letting the church hear what he's going to do with those who have embraced the injustice of wealth and abused the poor and, and indulged in a life of luxury. A, a reformer 500 years ago, John Calvin, wrote two reasons that I thought were interesting. Why would God speak judgment against the world in a letter to Christians? One reason might be that we would hear the end result of the wealthy and not envy their fortune, like my oldest son who said, Ruthie, let me tell you what happened to me. Not good. Eat the broccoli. Like maybe God wants you to actually not think wealth is all that good. Because honestly, you and I probably know, or can imagine, at least as we talk about it, the corrosive nature of wealth that it causes a level of entitlement. You, have you met an entitled person? Are our children feel entitled? Do we feel entitled? Welcome to a symptom of a wealthy nation. Just like if someone has cancer or is on some extreme medicines, they might feel symptoms of nausea, diarrhea, well, you name it, right? There'd be all the, and you're like, well, yeah, well, that just comes with the medicine. That just comes with my sickness. If you are in the wealthiest nation in the world, guess what? You literally might constantly deal with a lack of contentment. You might constantly feel entitled to things, striving for more because it's in the water and the air that we drink and that we breathe. So Calvin is saying that God wants us to hear the end results of the wealthy so we would not envy their fortune. That we would not think actually wealth is the, is the end result of, the, of a flourishing life. I, I may have mentioned a few weeks ago, read this biography of the pastor that was in Charles Spurgeon's church a hundred years before Spurgeon. And at the very first chapter, the biographer wrote that this pastor was blessed to be neither poor nor rich. And that caught my eye. I got interesting. Blessed not to be poor, I mean, you got food on the table, but blessed not to be rich? Why? Well, James 5, 1 to 6. The second reason Calvin gives is that why would God speak judgment against the world in a letter to Christians is that hearing their impending doom, we would more willingly endure abuse from the wealthy. Now, that's actually what the next couple of verses we'll talk about. When we get to verse 7, James then turns to the poor and says, let me tell you how you should respond to your situation. You don't get off the hook just because you're looking for bread every day. You're, you're not off the hook either. You too have to submit all things to your God and Creator. But let me 
help you understand that actually it's not as bad as you might think because being wealthy can have some pretty nasty bad things too, i.e. eat your flesh like fire bad stuff, right? That's not good either. James is specifically in these verses warning us of the dangers of wealth. Now, now hear this, both here and in the New Testament, God is not condemning rich people per se. He is condemning the misuse of wealth. And that can be the way we spend, the way we hoard, the way we trust in it. You cannot love God and money. Like Jesus said those words. So it's that love of money that becomes the issue. And if you have a lot of it, it's hard not to love it. If you have a lot of it, it's, it's hard to not be tainted or affected by the realities of all that. That language in verses 2 and 3 is so harsh. And James is specifically speaking against the hoarding of wealth at the end of, of verse 3. Do you see that? I, I stopped at the eat your flesh like fire. And then he says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Well, that's, I mean, again, economic terms in the wealthiest nation world. Isn't that good investments, James? What do you think he's getting at there? Probably a couple things. God is concerned that, it, that this demonstrates the totally disordered or false priorities. Remember what Scripture warns us over and over again. The temptation to trust in wealth for security. We are tempted to do that. Think of the whole vision of retirement and retirement accounts and 401ks and 403bs and Roth IRAs, and there is a sense of security that really patterns salvific hopes and trusts, if we're not careful. But too much hoarding can actually reject God's command to care for the material needs of others. If you simply have more than you even know what to do with, and have no concern for those who do not have enough. Well, maybe that flesh-like fire in verse 3 is talking about us. Jesus has an interesting encounter with some wealthy people in Luke 12. I'm going to read you the verses. Here's what he says. Listen to Jesus' words. This is just Luke 12. He says, watch out. Be on your guard. Now, what's he going to talk about, right? Culture war stuff, like agendas in politics, like all the physical body sexual stuff in our culture. That's what we would probably say, what should we watch out for, Christians? Watch out. Agendas, liberal agendas. Just, we go, watch out for what? Watch out for all kinds of greed. That's what he says. He says, life does not consist in, in an abundance of possessions. And then he tells a parable. Here it is, quote, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Like the, the guy had a great year. Luke 12, verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He had more crops than he knew what to do with. 
Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Jesus continues, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared all for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. I've got some reflections I'll give at the end when we get through these last three verses, but just... Did you just hear that? Store up things for ourselves, but are not rich toward God. Do you know how many storage facilities there are in Winnebago County? And they are popping up all over the place. You know the size of our houses now compared to the 1930s? the size of everything. We, we had a, a meal with uh, two Slovakians, pastors, uh, Leif, Canal, the missions chair, Neil Nyer, myself, and two brothers who serve in Slovakia. And we sat at a restaurant called Jessica's. Ever heard of it? And just at Jessica's. I mean, it, we're, we're not going to the steakhouse in Beloit. We're just at Jessica's ordering a $12 meal. And the, the, the brother who's born and raised and lived in Slovakia just made a comment and says, American meals are just the biggest. They are just massive. So before we even think about applications, do you just feel like the analogy I used earlier, the heat from the oven a little bit? The warning to Christians in the world's wealthiest nation. Let's look at those last three verses. I summarize them by, by, by saying this, God's judgment against the wealthy is because of their abuse of the poor and the life of luxury. Really, verses 4, 5, and 6 give two abuses that the wealthy do. So again, it's not, not, not assuming that, a, the, the, like, like the parable of Jesus, that the man that had the wonderful harvest all of a sudden, oh, you should not have had a good field. Like, you can't control the common grace of a good harvest. But you can control what you think about it. You can control what you do with it. So the first concern or abuse is verse 4. The wealthy have added to their wealth by defrauding their workers of their pay. Look at verse 4 with me. James says, look, like he's pointing, just like Revelation would. The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. That's an interesting phrase. It's not saying the workers cried out. It said the wages cried out. That's just a weird way of speaking. Well, wouldn't the workers complain? The emphasis on the wages crying out is telling you that God saw what you did. He didn't, hear, he didn't need to hear what they experienced or what their concern was, he saw what you did with the money, whether they complained or not. 
If that doesn't cause you pain, you, you, you ever, with your kid or grandkid, you've been around the corner and they're doing something they're not supposed to do and then you just kind of show yourself and they're like, yeah, dad. And they're like shocked because all of a sudden like you caught them. Like that's, that's verse four. That's God looking at how you deal with money. And says, so, you don't think I see that? In the first century, in James' day, and this is fitting his con- context, why he deals with the poor in the passages to come. In the first century, there was an increasing concentration of land in the hands of a small group of wealthy landowners. It's an interesting parallel, right? The growing number of the wealthy in our own day who owned the majority of the world's wealth. One country owning, what, over a third of the wealth of 200 and however many nations? So small landowners in the first century in James' day were forcibly swallowed up by these larger estates and were forced to hire themselves out to their rich landlords. You're not bargaining with that. If you bargain, they kick, the wealthy landlord kicks you off and brings in another farmer who will work for less than what you said you would. You're at the mercy of a landlord who will give you, hopefully, a fair wage. But what if he has a bad harvest? Does he decide to cut down your pay so that he can meet his margin of profit? What's interesting is at the end of verse 4, look at that phrase. Here now, the harvesters themselves cried out. It says at the end of verse 4, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Now, you might not think much of that personification of God with ears, but that statement is used throughout the Bible from literally first use in Genesis, last use in Revelation. And every time that statement is used, God is like like a parent getting up from their chair and getting, getting busy. Like every time that statement is used, like the very next moment, God intervenes. So listen to, what, listen to what God is saying, what James is saying on behalf of God to the wealthy. Guess what? The cries of the people that you've abused with your wealth, the judge has heard. The, the famous scene in Revelation, middle of the book, is when it just looks like God's people are just getting whooped. Like they're just crushed by the kingdom's of this world and the kingdom of God looks weak and fragile and thousands upon thousands of God's people are dying and then Revelation says this and the cries of the martyrs the martyrs reach the ears of the Lord Almighty you want to know what happens next it's not pretty for the kingdoms of this world God brings judgment this kind of judgment on anybody who laid a finger on his people, just like he said he would. The, the last concern is stated in verses 5 and 6, and especially verse 5, and this is the one that might be more directly related to us. So take note, right? You're not going home to this massive land estate with all your serfs and servants working around the field. But you probably, in the wealthiest nation of the world, have some extra resources that you can choose to live with wisely, Christianly or not. Verse 5 says this, You have lived on earth in luxury 
and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. The text makes clear in verse 5 that the sin here is an uncaring self-indulgence that does not consider the way such a life either disadvantages the poor or does not even consider them. The verb translated lived in luxury is not simply referring to an affluent lifestyle. It's literally talking about a a morally inappropriate self-indulgence. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know how we need to hear that or how you define that, but at what point are we immoral in the amount of wealth, consumerism, and riches that we have? If the only people that we deem guilty of that are the multi-millionaires, I think we're really due to receive the kind of wrath that God himself speaks about here. The image in verse 5 is presented of a person who has numerous resources and material possessions at their disposal and who willingly and aggressively pursue an unbridled embrace of personal pleasure and self-gratification. One commentator said this regarding verse 5. This is precisely the way in which many Western Christians live. An unbridled embrace of personal pleasure and self-gratification. And we will fight all day the sins of the body, but we will not even talk about the sins of our budget. That makes it easy. Until we listen to Scripture. So let me end with just some closing reflections. Let me ask you this question. If God is so concerned for the poor, and He's so concerned with a self-indulgent use of wealth, should not we be also? In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, Israel was regularly commanded to put into place policies and practices for the poor. You couldn't even harvest your whole field. You had to leave an edge for the poor. And you could say, that's my field. I I I get that whole field. God would say, it's not going to all be used. You've got to leave the corners for the poor. You've got to give them free reign. You do not hassle them when they come. That is for them. Or money given to God. Remember, remember Jesus' words, be rich toward God? If you actually t- added up all the tithes and offerings in the Old Covenant, you want to know what percent it was? About 42%. That's a big chunk. Like God was clearly trying to not let us be lovers of money. The New Testament actually magnifies that, but not with percentages, with the Holy Spirit. The New Testament assumes that our lives will be so shaped by the gratitude of God. But please hear, one of the reasons I think God gets so mad about this is God could have just stored up his glory for himself. He had perfect harmony in the Trinitarian relations of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. He had everything he needed. He decided to sacrificially, generously, hospitably give to us, and then you're going to receive from him, and then you're going to hoard. 
Seriously? You wonder why God gets a little peed off and talking about eat flesh with fire. I mean, I mean, it's not a joke for him. Did you, did you not sing the words we just sang about all oh, praise to glory? My breath is yours. I sing to you. What if it said my money's yours? My budget's yours. My retirement account is yours. My home is yours. My cars are yours. My job is yours. I want to be rich toward God. So how should disciples of Jesus respond to the message of James 5? Three closing quick thoughts. We need to do, firstly, we need to do everything we can to be fair, just, and equitable to all people, especially the poor and disadvantaged. James literally starts the book saying that. That might be the way you work, the way you deal with salaries, if you're a supervisor or if you're on committees, the way you share and are equitable with all the things that you have power over. And it might be limited. You might not be the CEO of a company. But in the ways that you can help search out and push for equality and fairness of all people, Christians should be. Again, I still think of those boys of mine who had a different perspective than their sister as an analogy for Christians who have a different perspective than their secular colleagues about money and wealth and justice. And that might also mean in the largest and wealthiest nation in the world that we have some work to do in regard to national interests in a global economy that can abuse poor nations. Rob Wall, a friend of mine, the James Scholar, he wrote this in his commentary on these verses. This is what he wrote. He goes, if James' brand of piety is taken seriously and at face value, i.e., if like you and I heard these words and are like, yep, that's true, then a substantial portion of the North American church would become quite uncomfortable with the ease by which it has accommodated the upward economic mobility of liberal democracy while trying to follow after its downwardly mobile Lord. Meaning we're following Jesus, take up your cross and follow me. What did he do? He emptied himself, he gave of himself, he sacrificed, and we are in a culture that's about gaining and growing. kind of hard to follow Jesus that way. Again, he knew it. Jesus knew it. He said, you cannot love both God and money. A, a second reflection and application. Even if James 5 is primarily addressing non-Christians, we need to see the lifestyle that leads to God's judgment. Indulgent living is condemned throughout Scripture. You ever heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? Most of us think of like sexual perversion. Do you know what the main sin there was? Greed. But how many of you have heard the sexual perversion stuff? Brothers and sisters, we will be tempted by the sins of our age group, the sins of our, uh, of our social group, the sins of our culture. Rich believers will be tempted to adopt a lifestyle of their social peers. Craig Blomberg, uh, I think he's close to retiring now, but long-time faithful interpreter of Scripture at Denver Seminary. 
says this, talking about James 5. He says, there are even more uncomfortable applications that should be made from this text. How many upper or middle class Western Christians have so many extra clothes, extra toys, and other needless possessions? Even investments that are not being used for much of anything, certainly not for the Lord's work. How many Christians, if they are ruthlessly honest, live a life perilously close to that of verse 5, the self-indulgent life of luxury? Then there is the enormous waste of food, uneaten and thrown away in every restaurant, the quantities of garbage thrown out that could be recycled, or the planned obsolescence of products that, that, so that entirely new ones must be bought rather than old ones repaired. It's fair asking, are we sinning when we live life without any economic guardrails for our middle or upper middle class lifestyle? Like if you have no guardrails, right? Like you've got like covenant eyes on your computer for the sexual sins. You've got all these borders, the Billy Graham Pence rule for your sexual sin. And you're like free, loose, whatever regarding the actual one that God addresses the most, which is your money. Like that sounds like the fool. Some Christians have proposed uh, economics of, uh, of enough strategy. Meaning they think that there should be a set amount that you can spend and live off this much, but anything more than that would be wrong. Now again, doesn't, doesn't, it's not based on your income, it's based on an economics enough. So you might make 80,000 and you think in this area that's, that's what we're gonna live on. You might make 580,000 and an economics of enough policy would say, I'm not living on all that. Like that would actually be self-indulgent. Now to be fair, Christians have totally disagreed on what that amount should be. It's gonna look a little different in Roscoe Rockton than it will in New York City. But certainly some line should probably be drawn. I worry there's not even a line in mind. What's too much? Other Christians have tried to fend off the religion of consumerism, which is its own religion. Remember, God pit money against himself. You cannot serve God money. They've tried to fend off the religion of consumerism in our culture where malls are our cathedrals. And life is defined as an everyday carnival of commerce with customers chasing satisfaction of their bodily desires. Oh, I love that restaurant. Have you tried that breakfast burrito? Oh, that massage is great. Or that vacation is wonderful. Or the creation of a persona based on clothes, electronics, and decor. Check out my new Nikes. Or look at that nice blouse. Or do you know what kind of purse this is? They try to draw a line, something, practices that limit that. Imagine if there were none. Last thing, my last suggestion, my last thought. While our treatment of the poor and our habits of self-indulgence will take time to transform, ultimately have to be a work of the Spirit and a serious commitment by the believer, one clear and proper response is the regular giving of a portion of our income and wealth to the Lord. 
Now, if I, as a pastor, preaching through this text that I didn't choose or write, was afraid to talk about money to you today, I'd be sinning against you. None of this is being talked about today because it's a fundraiser. Or we're, tr- we're, we're trying to pay off something. Actually, and this is, my, this is the, near the beginning of my 10th year. July, I finished nine years here. In those nine years, every single year, we have either met the budget just a tad under or been over. Meaning, we don't have a money problem. In fact, I checked and are giving up to this point. Again, I don't know what any of you give at all. But I can look at the bottom dollar. Our giving for our budget up to this week and actual giving is within exactly 50 bucks. Now that is because of faithful, generous, sacrificial Christians who are part of this local church. But I say that to tell you, I'm not talking about money to get money out of you. I'm talking about money because it's dangerous. And God, through his expository working through his text, is wanting you to know that you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot hoard for yourself and not be rich toward God. We may not even be able to see yet the ways we are lovers of money. We might not be able to see because it's so common how we capitulate to a life of self-indulgence. But by giving up front a portion of our income to the Lord, we train ourselves to recognize that not just our time and not just our talent, but our treasure belongs to Him. I say this because you and I both need to hear the warning of the Lord against the luxurious and self-indulgent lifestyle. And like my two boys with their sister, they should look at the reality of the world's wealth. You and I should see as Christians the reality of the wealth in our world and say, I know everybody's doing that, but as a disciple of Jesus, that is not right. For I love the Lord my God with all my heart with all my soul, with all my mind, and all my strength. And that includes my wealth. Something should look different. And if we're living the same way as our neighbors and our co-workers, you can hear the older brother say, that's not going to work with our Lord. Don't do that. Or let me be frank with you. The Lord is going to know exactly what you're doing in your richness toward Him. Guard your hearts, brothers and sisters. Father, help us as we navigate the the warning, the difficult message of this text. Thank you that you are not afraid to speak into these issues and Form us. Father, some of our brothers and sisters, in some way, maybe all of us in this culture need to hear and feel the heat of this biblical text. But I pray that you would apply it to us appropriately for each of our lives. Father, we want to love you with all our time, 
with all our talent, and we want to love you with all our treasure. We want the glory that you shared with us to be given back to you. And we pray that our lives and our deeds and our wealth would reflect that as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.